Hello and welcome to episode number 160 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, December 15th, 2014. In this episode of the podcast, we will revisit some of the arguments and guests that have been presented on this podcast over the past several weeks, uh, most notably since episode number 145, and I will get into that briefly. Uh, But basically, there's going to be some clips and some conversation on my part um, about some of these discussions. Before we get into that, I'd like to let you know that I do not have any guests lined up for next week or perhaps even the next few coming weeks. Um, I have put some of that in motion in terms of getting some new guests on the podcast, and I will let you know that some of the themes we will be featuring, probably starting in the new year, will be related to forestry and forest management. And that's a theme where I have uh, some background and training, and it hasn't been featured too prominently on the Agro-Innovations podcast through the years, but it will be in some coming episodes. So if you are interested in forest management, then please be sure to stay tuned uh, in 2015 to the Agro-Innovations podcast because we're going to feature some of those topics. Of course, I also plan to continue to feature uh, some of the economic topics that we've been talking about as well, and I've been trying to line up some uh, guests to do that too. So please stay tuned for that. If you like this podcast, then consider donating. You can click on the Donate button. It's a PayPal link, and it will take you to PayPal where you can contribute to this effort, which is a community-supported effort, and um, all the podcasts that get produced here are released under Creative Commons licenses, so all of the work that I'm doing is free and open source for you to use in whatever way uh, that you see fit, so long as you follow the strictures of that license. Now, to get into today's topic, once again, episode number 145 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, which was titled The Failure of Permaculture, has kicked off a clickstorm on agroinnovations.com after a few people have shared that episode on Facebook. Um, In the wake of that clickstorm, a gentleman named Peter, who I believe is located in Australia, uh, sent me a comment on the comment thread for episode number 145, which is a pretty rich comment thread. I suggest you check that out. Uh, But I want to say thank you, Peter, for your comment, and I'm going to share Peter's comment with you and respond to some of the things that he says And then also, as we go through this process, I am going to share some clips with you from some previous episodes. So, Peter writes, The heading, The Failure of Permaculture, is somewhat misleading, as is the metrics by which a failure is determined. Every time a permi, or other, satisfies a need for themselves, outside of the market system, that could, should be deemed a success, and it undermines, in small steps, the economic system that is creating the mess we live in. For permaculture to be entirely successful in the current economic system would probably require jettisoning some aspects of permaculture, especially some aspects of both the ethics and principles. And I respond to that by saying, Peter, that I would not dispute these small victories. In fact, for years I have celebrated these types of victories on this very podcast, and I have given voice to many people who are living by example and showing us the way. However, 
small steps won't solve is what you describe the mess that we live in. It's a pretty big mess, as I'm sure you know, and so we need some big ideas. I, for one, would like to see more of the world's food come from permaculture. Consider these facts from my recent interview with Simon Huntley in episode number 157 of the Agro Innovations podcast. CSAs serve, the number that I've heard bandied about is 2%. 1 to 2% of the market are in CSAs, and I don't know how valid that is. I don't really know where that comes from, but it's a good estimate, maybe. I think there's a perception within some from some CSA farmers that the CSA movement is sort of sputtering. You know, there's not as many, you know, they're having trouble keeping as many CSA members as they did before. Um, so I just wanted to see, like, what is the what really is the average growth of CSAs? And within our system, because this is based on our sample, but we have an average CSA growth in 2014 of 71%. So memberships grew by 71% on average. And so I looked at that data and I said, well, that's, that's weird. That's really, like, that's a lot of growth. How is that? happening. And so what I did is I split that up by the size of the CSA, figuring out, figuring that maybe smaller CSAs might grow faster than larger CSAs because it's, you know, a smaller number of members that grow. And that's true. So CSAs of more than 100 members grew by 13.8%. So so larger CSAs grew by, say, around 14%. And then smaller CSAs grew by, of less than 100 members, grew on average by 156%. So that's sort of where that number comes from. I I think that's a really interesting number. In this report, we came up with an average, for our CSA farms, an average CSA income of $30,342. So that's an average CSA income, but we don't know what else they're doing, and that's just an average, you know, based on our system. Um, Is that a gross income or a net income? That'd be a gross. Those were some clips from my interview with Simon Huntley, which uh, appeared in episode number 157 of the podcast. So let's rehash that just a little bit. Roughly 1% to 2% of our food in the United States is coming from CSAs. And yet these CSAs have a median gross income of only $30,000. Now, they are experiencing some pretty rapid growth, especially the smaller CSAs, and even the larger ones are growing at a good clip. Um, But this median gross income of $30,000 is somewhat disturbing, I think. And so CSAs may or may not represent the permaculture community as a whole. I think that their plight is probably our plight. And to me, it seems to be an economically unsustainable one. And so the question I have asked is, Why is this the case? And what are some ways to rectify this situation? We'll talk more about that later. Peter's comment continues. Peter writes, Scaling up, or economies of scale, is not the only answer. Small farmers continue to be the major food producers in the world, a fact that is missed entirely in the comments so far, and do so, in large part, outside of the formal economy, and with a proportionately smaller area of land. Yes, it is true that small farmers continue to be the major food producers in the world. However, this is not the case in most industrialized countries, uh, particularly in North America. And actually, many of the small farmers in the developing world are under some type of agricultural intensification process that usually involves increasing landscape fragmentation 
and more and more reliance on pesticides and chemical fertilizers. I refer you to my peer-reviewed publication in the Journal of Sustainable Agriculture entitled Agricultural Intensification, Monocultures, and Economic Failure, the case of onion production in the Tipahara watershed on the eastern slope of the Bolivian Andes, which was published in uh, June of 2011. And basically that uh, tells this story of this intensification process um, that really does not resemble anything close to permaculture amongst many of the small farmers in the developing world. And I think you will find when you dig into this that uh, Bolivia is not unique in that sense, and this is happening in much of the world, uh, particularly in Latin America, although I'm not sure what the situation is like in Africa. If anyone has some experience there, you can chime in. Peter's comments also say, It's reform of the corporate-dominated economy that could lead to revival of small productive farms. The idea that we need to replicate the current food system with large-scale, profitable permaculture farms is both naive and dangerous. This is not to say that we can't have larger permaculture-inspired farms that produce perennial staples. And my response to that, Peter, is that the process of one man, one mule, and two acres of land is almost as ruinous in the developing world as one man, one tractor, and 10,000 acres of land has been in the West. And no, I am not arguing for permaculture mega farms. I've never argued for that. Uh, If you had listened to some of these other podcast episodes, you would know that. I'm not arguing for permaculture corporate conglomerates or anything of that type. However, I also see the atomization of producers, whether it be in the West or in the developing world, as a huge problem. And it's probably something in between that makes the most sense. What that something is, what that something looks like, it's up to us to decide that and to create it. Hopefully, I've given some ideas and some inspiration and some context for that in some of my interviews, and we're going to get into that here shortly. Peter concludes by saying, The comment that permaculture is, quote, bumbling along on the margins of society amongst the hippies, misfits, and preppers is fine with me. That's such a loose and derogatory comment, says Peter. I certainly don't fit into any of those descriptors, and most permies I know don't either. Well, all I can say is I'm sorry that you find my comment derogatory, but I do think that Bill Mollison himself wouldn't dispute that he is a misfit of sorts and maybe even a prepper in his own way. The fact that you think my comment is derogatory maybe reveals some of your own biases against hippies, misfits, and preppers, all of whom I think are valuable members of our community. However, and probably more unfortunately, is that this particular episode, and I'm talking about episode number 145 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, has been grabbed onto and either celebrated as a major insight or derided as false, incomplete, and disparaging. Two critical things, I think, have been missed here. One, this episode was supposed to be the beginning of a conversation, and certainly not the final word. And I think, as a beginning, it was a fine beginning indeed. It was followed up with interviews and case studies with people who see these same problems. And these people are doing some very real and very important work to address these problems. Sadly, many people prefer to stop in for the click fest, maybe leave a comment, and then we're once again distracted by the 30-second attention cycle of the internet. If the click fest people had stuck around, they would have heard some serious perspectives on these important issues from people like Luis Sierra, Narendra Varma, David Holmgren, 
Derek Doherty, and Tom Giesel. Fortunately, if you are in a hurry, I've included some of the most relevant comments from these people in a set of clips that I'm about to share with you. The second thing that was missed is that I have not been arguing that permaculture is failing as an agroecological design science, nor am I arguing that people who are practicing permaculture in their daily lives are failures. Rather, my argument is that permaculture is not well served by Western cultural values and socioeconomic structures, and particularly from the perspective of scaling permaculture up and providing more of our food supply from permaculture, I think that many of these cultural values and socioeconomic structures are self-defeating and preventing that from happening. Let's listen to Narendra Varma from Our Table Cooperative. Uh, Let's listen to his perspective on this. And one of the things we were doing at the same time is that we wanted to sort of ask these questions about what does it really mean to be sustainably farming? You know, what does that word mean, sustainable, um, in the long term? And we came up with this um, very beautiful sort of master plan for the farm that was based on permaculture design principles and a biodynamic approach to agriculture. Uh, We spent about a year, hired, um, formed a team of of some really excellent permaculture folks and came up with this beautiful design and very quickly realized that um, it would be very difficult to put that design of and that land management ethic into to implement that land management ethic unless the broader culture and economic system was incentivizing that land management ethic versus incentivizing the exact opposite, which is sort of monoculture. Um, I mean, we found ourselves really um, realizing very, very quickly, and we're new to this, um, that monoculture was a lot simpler in many ways. And certainly the marketplace, the, the outside economy and culture were were very much forcing us in that direction or pushing us in that direction. So we had this conversation. We said, well, all right, which one do we want to keep? Do we want to keep the land management ethic or do we want to keep this kind of current economic model, which is all about this mythology of that current economic model is about sort of individual entrepreneurship um, and, you know, um, the the rugged individual kind of mythology that we have as a culture. Um, And we decided that it was really the... um, the land management ethic that we wanted to keep, but in order for us to keep it and actually put it into practice in a economically viable way, we had to come up with an economic system and a cultural system that would support it. So we started to, to put the same sort of effort that we put into the land design into the, what the permaculturalists would call invisible structure design or the social permaculture design um, and completely switched the gears and came up with this idea of a multi-stakeholder cooperative and really an ecosystem of not only legal entities, and it can get quite complex um, because, of course, you're working within this framework of the current system um, while trying to create a new one within it, um, you know, um, and this idea of a multi-stakeholder cooperative so that all of the players, all of the human beings in the system would work in a cooperative way um, and really a model, a more sustainable ecosystem. Um, and the worker members of the co-op, just like most other worker co-ops, are employees of the organization. So one of the things that we were finding is that, you know, there was lots of young people today who are interested in taking up farming, and they, by hook or by crook, find some land, and they get started, and they, you know, sat, work 80-hour days, and maybe have an off-farm job to pay the bills, and struggle and struggle and struggle, 
but they always run up against the same walls of that sort of broader economic system when really they're not competing with other farms like them. They're competing with 5,000 acre farms in, in, in California. Uh, and it's very difficult for them to survive, and most of them go under. And we thought that, well, this is kind of insane. Um, if you, you know, how do you get 2 million young new farmers to go into this when there's absolutely no economic future in sight for them? It's really easy for them to sort of envision, you know, it's just too difficult. So um, we thought, well, what if you said, okay, I'm going to pay farmers a base living wage, and then on top of that, give them the benefits of entrepreneurship, like profit sharing and decision making by putting it within a cooperative ownership structure. You described this process of this realization of seeing people being on this treadmill of futility in terms of being up against this monolithic economic system uh, that is very difficult to change as a single uh, farming entrepreneur. And yet I have seen so many cases where people get to that point and they don't have that realization that you and your organization have um, or had. What is... The dynamic here, I mean, why are people getting stuck on that treadmill and and not moving towards this cooperative model that you guys have discovered or uh, relearned? I think it's purely um, the cultural mythology of individual entrepreneurship that we are saddled with. I didn't grow up in America. I, I have a different set of, um, of mythologies that I, and stories that I carry with me. I mean, I've lived in this country for a very long time, longer than I lived in India where I grew up. Um, so clearly, I mean, obviously I carry the American stories inside me as well, but not at the same level as someone who's native here. Um, so I, I guess part of it is just being willing to say that, you know, we, a lot of people who are working in this space, um, uh, we were talking earlier about sort of permaculture design, you know, apply that. To, to, the, to the physical landscape, and that feels very natural and very obvious to them. And there's this sort of aha moment when you when you see people in a permaculture design course, and then they run off and, and implement these things either on their backyards at, at a suburban or, or urban scale, or even on their small farms. But very few people um, really take the missive that permaculture design is just a design methodology and can be applied to any system, not just the physical landscape, and then actually follow through with that and do it. Um, because frankly, the social stuff is significantly harder. Um, you're dealing with much broader issues. You're dealing with people, uh, far less predictable. Um, we know very little about the soil and about ecosystems. We know even less about each other at some level. So I think, uh, and, and people are stuck in the cycle of just trying to pay the bills and make the ends meet. So there's a sort of luxury of time that we had um, that I think allowed us to, to go in that direction. That clip that you just heard was from episode number 154 of the Agro Innovations podcast, and that was an interview with Narendra Varma of the Our Table Cooperative. And I have to say, thank goodness for people like Narendra who come from different countries and who come with a different set of cultural assumptions and mythologies, and they can really, in perhaps in a way that people who are from the West can't, they can really articulate very eloquently some of the shortcomings of our own cultural myths and some of the ways that they're holding us back. And that really is the essence of the argument that I'm making in the failure of permaculture. I would also ask us to consider the possibility that true permaculture isn't even possible under our cultural myths and values. 
and the socioeconomic structures that come along with them. Let me allow David Holmgren elaborate on this, uh, and this is from episode number 151 of the podcast, entitled Pathways to Intentional Communities. Here's David Holmgren. Yes, well, I, my second mentor in permaculture, Hakai Tane, uh, who I worked with in New Zealand in 1979 and then again in 84, convinced me that the the permaculture vision of integrated land uses on a sort of a broad acre basis was, ne- was never likely to come about through separate freehold ownership, you know, where you've got the foresters over here and the graziers there and the beekeepers here and the horticulturalists on their patch uh, because the landscape doesn't actually work like that. You need to have uh, use rights integrated use rights where the forestry and grazing use rights are actually threaded through the landscape, that the the beekeeper and the agriculturalist are working all of the sources through that same landscape and that 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 needed a different land tenure system to do that. You couldn't do that through uh, a freehold um, separate title. And Further than that, that the sustainable models that existed before industrialisation of society did have those common land uh, tenure patterns, which, of course, were the breakdown of those has been the essential precursor to industrialisation, the Enclosure Acts um, that acted as the, uh, the stick driving people uh, off the land in in England and similar more extreme processes that are at work around the world today. So that recreation of common land and some sort of common land management structure, uh, the modern versions of that really come through intentional communities and particularly through uh, uh, body corporate condominium forms of land tenure where people can have some uh, relatively freehold rights to um, a house and small piece of land and then might have a use right uh, on the common land. But to disconnect that place to live and the, the enterprise right. Uh, and that's something that uh, we've tried to model in a small way um, on the uh, small eco-village development that we're uh, involved in um, uh, not far north from us, uh, Friars Forest, Uh, and also to see how some of the tragedy of the commons aspects of intentional communities over the last 30 years where you get a situation where the thing everyone can agree on with common land is to do nothing. <laughs> uh, that's been a, certainly a common outcome in Australian intentional communities to be able to move beyond that sort of paralysis to allow those who have the skills and the capabilities to uh, be able to make their own decisions within some reasonable boundaries uh, that the uh, the common owners uh, still have some. Uh, control over the the larger 
aspects of uh, of of how the land is used, but not in the day to day sense. So, how to combine the the common ownership structure and yet allow the essential uh, enterprise and expertise based decision making of those who are on the ground doing the work actually making uh, the the practical decisions. So I think there are some uh, small examples of how that's worked in in different ways, and I think it it uh, does give that potential of the the synergies from integrated land use and also ways of resolving the inevitable, uh, not just, of course, the positive synergies that happen, but the conflicts and trade-offs and whether that's between, you know, um, the grazier wants to put his sheep into the forest now, but no, the forester doesn't think that's a a good idea type of um, those combinations that maybe lead people to say, oh, no, you need to separate these things. Uh, so, you know, and encase them in, in freehold ownership because it is very difficult for any one operator or family unit to encompass all the different skill sets that are required for uh, genuine uh, polyculture. Um, and sometimes that's a sort of, there's a cultural aspect to this, you know, people who um, focus on animals um, are sort of often it's a very different mentality from those who focus on trees, uh, for example. And we need to accept that those things do uh, require a different mentality, but they need to be able to work on the, on the same land. So I think intentional communities and larger farms have that potential to develop that uh, multiple overlapping enterprises and shared use of infrastructure, uh, shared use of um, equipment in some cases, and get beyond the, as you say, the, the Lone Ranger trying to do everything. It's funny that as, a, as you talk about this and tell us about your experiences that you've known since the very early days of permaculture that this, you know, freehold title model was not going to work. And I'm sure you've said that before and you've probably written about it. But it seems like, to me at least, in the way that I see people executing permaculture, that that message may have gotten a little lost. I mean, it feels like a lot of people are more focused on a lot of production techniques. And what you're talking about is really rearranging our entire socioeconomic and cultural organizations. And yet so little work has been done in this area. Um, Talk about that. Talk about, you know, do you feel like this message has been lost over the years or not given the attention that it really deserves? Being that it seems to be the key to really implementing permaculture on large scales. And um, why do you think so little work and effort is being put towards that area? Yeah. Um, Yes, well, I... I uh, presented a paper to the first um, permaculture convergence in 1984 called um, 
Oh, was it at that? Maybe it wasn't there, but it was at that time. Uh, it's in my collected writing series called Prospects for Rural Development. And it sort of uh, describes these issues and that uh, I've just been explaining. So it has been a, an issue for a long time. I think also there was a strong crossover in the early days of permaculture with the intentional communities movement and a lot of hope that um, a lot of these uh, more larger scale aspects of permaculture and the uh, aspects of economic organisation and uh, local currencies and all sorts of different things that would happen through uh, the possibilities of of intentional communities. But I think in the same way that a lot of permaculture ideas uh, didn't necessarily go backwards but didn't go forwards in the 80s during the Thatcherite-Reaganite revolution where all of the uh, environmental ideas were cast aside and, you know, the market was seen as, um, you know, bringing all the solutions, certainly collective uh, ownership and uh, living together that uh, was represented by intentional communities uh, was seen as a sort of a, a failed pathway. And I think that largely results from if there's opportunities for us to individually do our own thing, and especially through the acceleration of debt, <laughs> borrowed money, then most people will tend to take autonomy over uh, collective approaches. Whereas when there's not the opportunities for individual action, often uh, people are more forced to uh, work collectively. And it's interesting that if you look at permaculture in Europe compared with permaculture in Australia and North America, there has been a lot more of this uh, collective focus because for many decades it's been impossible for people to really gain ownership of land. It's just been too expensive. So collective ways of owning land have really been people's only options. And in countries like uh, Denmark and uh, other Scandinavian countries and to a fair extent uh, places like Germany uh, as well, at least within more socially radical uh, inclined uh, groups of people associated with permaculture, the idea of doing things collectively is not such an anathema as it is to the very strong sort of individualist cultures that prevail in, in places like the United States and Australia. So I think, you know, it depends where you're talking about in the world uh, and how much success there's been in these uh, uh, different approaches. Now let's have a listen to Darren Doherty's response when I asked him a similar question and that was in episode number 152 of the Agro-Innovations podcast entitled Neo-Feudal Permaculture. And here is Darren's response. I, yeah, I agree with you completely, Frank. I think um, 
there, there is a bit of a lack of imagination, but then there's um, and and there is a lack of of cooperation. Uh, one of my um, colleagues and clients, Jerry Carroll, has come up with a a program called um, uh, Collaborative Agricultural, or what he calls it, the need for the collaborative agricultural economy, um, where where we. I won't say it's sort of revisionist, but it is in somewhat a revisionist uh, means of going back to smaller, more human-scale landscapes. I mean, I was flying over, um, where was it? I, was, I, was, I flew from Missouri to Chicago a couple of days ago, and I was looking down over the landscape, and I was looking at these properties, these row crop properties. And on one section, there were six Six prop, six uh, houses, six individual silos on on. So there was a sixth of a section each family. Now that meant you know, forty or fifty years ago, you know, prior to Earl Butts sort of changing the world, making chicken available to everybody. Um, that uh, those people there was there was six families, probably of four or five kids each, who who lived on a sixth of a section, right, or a quarter of a section and they were able to make a living and send their kids to school and, and most of them were collaborating heavily because, because the machinery age hadn't, you know, hydraulics hadn't caught up. We were still, you know, there weren't efficient bailing systems. You know, all of these things that we somewhat take for granted now actually involved a lot of human hands to manage and so there was some kind of a collaborative agricultural economy back then. Um, and that's part of what I see as, and you know, people like Jerry as well, um, see as what we need to get back to. But do it not in a, um, not do it in a commodity-based uh, framework as a first choice, but doing it in a localised uh, marketing frame, framework as a first choice. That would be the major change that I would be looking at. So, but shouldn't people like you and myself and others uh, with diverse skill sets be able to team up and, you know, regardless of whether we own the land or not, I mean, it it almost seems irrelevant. We can rehabilitate it. We can get it to produce. We can generate uh, wages and incomes for ourselves and, you know, get this thing rolling. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but I just get back to the primary motivations of a lot of people in Western democracies is that there's still this desire this post-feudal desire to actually own your own piece of land and uh and you're only going to go generally and i'm generalizing generally people are only going to go so far with the capital expenditure that they put into a property in the development of someone else's resources which they know at any time once the uh once the lease agreement is up that that they can that they could be kicked off so there is a bit of that, but I, I, at the same time, there's other people out there who are more than happy to uh, to have to go and do those sorts of things on properties. Although, isn't there some room to develop maybe some new systems or innovative ways of doing things? Maybe using some of the technologies at our disposal. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just throwing yeah. this out there, yeah, there to, to maybe and, make it know, a little I'm, lighter. I'm, I'm inspired. I talk about people like uh, Ford Hall Farm in the UK. Um, uh, Arthur Hollands wrote one of my favourite books. It's called The Farmer, the Plough and the Devil. 
and uh, he toured the US um, years ago. He's been dead for some time, but um, you know that he had a farm, and he was a he was a tenant farmer, a generational tenant farmer. So his father was a tenant farmer, and I think his father before that in the UK. I mean, seventy five percent of the UK's farming land is owned by five percent of the population. So it's and I've got clients who are feudal landlords, you know, lords actually have titles, they sit in the House of Lords. And so it, it's there and it's pervasive. So it's already culturally there. Now, Arthur Holland's died and as I understand it, his younger two children um, were to take over the tenancy and the Lord decided to sell the joint, as I understand it. And because he had a direct marketed model, well, direct marketing model, um, they had thousands of customers and the thousands of customers were upset at the prospect of losing their food supply. So what they did was a few bright minds in there. What they did was they decided to get together and actually buy the farm. And I think that farm has something like two to 5,000 owners. So it's the I, – I see that sort of innovation – as being a really positive one because one of the issues well, – and so those, that, that, those young Holland's children who I think are now in their 30s, um, they have it written into their tenancy agreement with their 5,000 landlords that they can continue to have a dynastic link to that landscape, which they have for multiple generations now, provided that they follow the guidelines that their father set out as production, as a production system. Now, I see that sort of model as being the kind of innovation that's, that's, that, uh, that we may need to get towards. So in order for um, people to feel secure in landscapes and to feel like they can invest um, the profit that they generate from landscapes back into them, well, that's an instructive story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, it's Ford Hall Farm, F-O-R-D-H-A-L-L. Um, you can have a look and you can even download all of their, tr- uh, their trust agreements and everything. It's a great story. And it's one of a few where you actually have to have an innovative um, corporate profile to manage some of these um, challenges that we have in a post-feudal and post-communist society too. I mean, you know, remember we've been through all of that. People have tried to collectivise, and I think that models like that one I just quoted are, are actually good ones that are post both of those um, systems. They, they kind of give you a bit of both in a way, and the, but the positive pieces of both. So that was a rather lengthy response to some of Peter's comments, but I think it also summarizes some of the most salient points around this conversation that have happened over the past several months. And so please, um, I would encourage people, if you are interested in some of those interviews, to go back and check them out. They're all great, and there will be more to come. But keep in mind that episode number 145 of the podcast, again, was the beginning of a conversation and certainly not the final word. And many of the concerns and issues that I outlined in that episode are shared by many of the people in the permaculture community. And to point out those shortcomings is not something that people should take offense to. 
Rather, it's something that should inspire us to think about new ways to address those shortcomings, to think about why those shortcomings may exist, and to do some of the hard work that needs to be done to address those shortcomings in our everyday lives and in the landscapes around us. Thankfully, many people are already doing this, and those people have been featured on previous recent episodes of the podcast. Now let's wrap this up with a brief set of comments by Tom Giesel, who's the honorary historian of the National Farmers Union, and his perspective on the future of food and farming. That's what I see in agriculture today, is a rebirth of, of the small farms, and it, it just it's going to happen naturally. It's already happening. And, um, you know, we're going to have the large industrial-type farms. I mean, they're not going to go away. But what I see in Farmers Union, even in our organization, we have now the New England Farmers Union, which is, you know, mainly small, smaller-type operations. But I, I think that is the, the future, and I think it's out there for the taking. Um, and I, I, there, I know there's people, in, especially in the Northeast United States, that are young people are working on, on this and doing a, a marvelous job. So, yeah, and cooperatives are going to be their tool. That that's what it was a hundred years ago or a hundred and twenty thirty years ago, and that's the tool that's still in existence for them to use today. And our organization is embracing these people because we we know we know that that farms, you know, not, I'm a I'm a rather large farmer. I'm downsizing considerably, but but you know these farms are going to go away, and and but the land doesn't, and it, access to land is the big issue. And figure out how you can how you can make these changes, but indeed cooperatives will be the change. You know, that's one thing I've learned from doing this history, and what's really pulled me into it is that um, that the issues, like I said earlier, never really change. It's the resolve of the people. Cooperatives will be our tool, one tool amongst many. And one interesting thing and one note that Tom Giso leaves us with is it's not the issues that change, but it's the resolve of the people. How is your resolve? Are you ready to go create a worker-owned cooperative and start practicing permaculture collaboratively and in a more collective fashion? Or are you ready to maybe lend a hand to some of these worker cooperatives that already exist, either through providing labor or capital or helping to document some of their processes and open sourcing them on the internet? What is your role going to be in helping us to make these changes so that we don't continue